You're listening to KCBP Community Radio on 95.5 FM and streaming on kcbpradio.org. This is Women of the Valley, where we examine the issues, stories, organizations, and people important to women in our community. We're your hosts, Leah Hassett and Linda Scheller. Hello, we're talking today with Hannah Heitman. She is an author, a museum curator, and a sophomore in college who grew up in Modesto. And we welcome her to our studio today at Women of the Valley. Welcome, Hannah. Thank you for having me. Hannah, I was motivated to invite you here today because I read an article you wrote in your high school newspaper or magazine that really changed the way I thought about school dress codes. Can you talk about school dress codes and their relationship to women's rights? Yeah, of course. I think that at its core, the dress code reinforces this very dangerous idea that appearances matter more than the content of someone's character. Um, And I also think it perpetuates this very dangerous idea of victim blaming um, because you it's kind of saying that the education of male students is more important than the education of female students. And when male students, or or female students for that matter, see a female student being uh, punished for wearing shorts that are too short, that really registers with them and they consider that action to be bad. And in the workplace, that translates to increased sexual harassment. And it also, I mean, high school is one of the lowest points uh, in in most girls' life in terms of self-confidence and stuff. And so I think that policing female students' bodies just kind of exacerbates that. So to kind of flesh that out, if I'm understanding correctly, um, if somebody is dressed, showing more of their body, that is looked at in a sort of a sexualized way, even when they're just students that are going to school? Is that yes. is that the fear? Yeah, exactly. Um, that's exactly it. And it's looked at something that deserves to be punished. And there's this idea that uh, because of how you present yourself, you're deserving of anything bad that happens to you. And that's very, very dangerous. And that's very much a part of rape culture. And rape culture is a It's a phrase that we hear a lot about. Is there any way you could briefly describe it for our listeners? Sure, yeah. I would say rape culture is just kind of... It's usually referred to as the more benevolent parts of sexism that are present in our society that excuses rape and uh, perpetuates the sort of ideology that informs rape. Wow. That's really helpful that you explained that because I'm sure a lot of us have heard that and not really had it explained and that's really that's really helpful. Thank you. Going back to what you were saying about the workplace, how does the dress code issue compare to what we see in the larger society? So, um, recently a lot of articles have come across my feed, like, over the past few years about, like, newscasters being criticized, female newscasters being criticized for, like, how short their dress is or even dressing in, like, a super feminine way where that's, like, not really accepted in a professional environment. And I think that really begins with the way that we treat 
uh, the dress code in high school because you're seen as like, oh, this is professional and this is unprofessional and it doesn't matter what they have to say because they're not presenting themselves in a professional way. So I think that definitely extends to the work environment. Because then professional is is equal to male instead of female. And I, yes, that makes a lot of sense the way you explained that. So where does feminism enter into the discussion of dress and fashion generally? Gosh, <laughs> um, like, where doesn't it? I feel like we we definitely judge women more by what they wear than we do men. And just the idea that clothing has a gender, I think, is a feminist issue. And like you were saying, we perceive uh, powerful women as dressing in a masculine way, whereas if you dress more feminine, you're seen as gentle and weaker. So I think that's definitely uh, a part of feminist thought as well. I'm wondering if that's changing, because when I was a young woman um, and I started to think about these issues on my own, not because my feminist mother was thinking about them, but (laughs) on my own, finally... I felt like I should be not wearing super feminine clothes for some reason and I'm thinking that that has changed and I'm and if it has I'm I'm happy to see that because I don't see why we have to be judging each other's clothing as women you, you know what I mean in yeah. terms of their their political statement Do you think how we dress is a political act in some ways? Absolutely. I think it's a political act. And I'm so fascinated by it because it's like a political act that you can't opt out of. Historically, fashion has always been used to sort of classify people into a certain social class. Um, And I think that that's pretty much stayed the same. And even if you're not consciously thinking about what you wear it still reveals parts of your identity and social class and things like that I just want to also tell you how grateful I am that you wrote that article because I have two children (laughs) one who was in high school with you who brought home the article who was a boy and my younger is a girl who is still a teenager and I I think it's helpful that I was informed by your article around that so It's been beneficial to me. (laughs) I'm so glad that someone read it and got something out of it. Absolutely. Um, I was reading your blog where you quote author David Dark writing about the importance of asking, what do you like and why? You can talk about David Dark if you want, or you could just tell us if you will, what do you like and why? Yeah, so I think um, in terms of style, I'm very attracted to hyper-feminine styles because I found a lot of power in embracing my femininity sartorially, and I think that feminists sometimes often forget that feminism is about viewing everybody as equal whether they dress in a masculine way that wasn't traditionally accepted or if they choose to dress in a traditionally feminine way. Um, so in terms of my personal style, I'm very much influenced by like, uh, Japanese fashion subcultures that take that femininity to like the nth degree. And in regards to designers, I'm very inspired by like Virgil Abloh, who brought, I think, streetwear into sort of the mainstream high fashion world. Iris Van Herpen, who's this avant-garde fashion designer who does all sorts of crazy things, 
Um, Daniel Silverstein, who's doing a lot of interesting things with fashion and sustainability. Vivian Westwood for making punk high fashion. And I think I really respond to all of these people's work because they're owning up to the political power that fashion can have and that their work has. That's interesting. Can you tell me what avant-garde means briefly? Because I don't quite know. Yeah, of course. It's it's kind of a very elusive concept, and I think I use it in a different way than most people would, but it basically just means cutting edge. So a lot of people think of like um, like East German cinema would be avant-garde, <laughs> and like Marina Abramovich, the performance artist, would be avant-garde. And I use it sort of as a way because I I love those things as well but I am also a really big fan of like cutesy very girly maybe not traditionally deep things and I think the contrast between those two sides of my character is avant-garde so that's why I started like attaching that label to myself thank you for explaining that so what are you currently working on or thinking about that deals with women and what they wear or men and what they wear Yeah, I write for a fashion magazine called V Magazine and their offshoot V Man, which focuses on men's fashion. So uh, how fashion affects gender and the everyday lives of people is kind of always at the forefront of my mind. And I think right now I'm trying to figure out how I can empower women and people in general going through this very materialistic, very corporate channel of fashion journalism. I really want to get anti-establishment thought into the mainstream, and I kind of know that the only way to do that is through corporate channels, so it's just kind of a an interesting uh, paradox because you have to figure out like how you can get these ideas out there without selling out, um, and that obviously relates to fashion too because I do think it's an art form, and I know some people would say it's frivolous, but it, it does very much impact our lives. I mean, it's it's literally what we're wearing every day. Um, but at the same time, I know the fashion journalism industry is very elite, um, and so it's hard to, to make it applicable to the every man or every woman, uh, but that's what I'm working on right now. Well, thank you. It's so interesting to talk to you. I'm actually going to hand over the interview to Linda Scheller, my co-host, and thank you for answering my questions about fashion. Of course. Hannah, I'm curious, when did you start writing? Well, at the risk of sounding cliche, I've pretty much been writing for as long as I can remember. Even before I could write, I was telling stories that my parents would transcribe. And some of my earliest memories are of like learning to write and like what a revelation that was because I was always so worried I would forget things. Um, So it was great to be able to write things down. And I think that's a lot of why I write now is for self-preservation. But I started kind of identifying as a writer when I started my blog when I was about 11. Um, And then I started doing freelance work in high school freshman year. And that's when I felt like I had the authority to call myself a writer. Your, your father is a screenwriter, filmmaker, and also the author of The Saint of Dragons and, and Samurai. Your grandmother, a dear friend of mine, Jen Heitman, wrote beautifully. She read extensively. I was curious, how did they affect your interest in writing and your development as a writer? 
Yeah, so a lot of people have asked me if I feel like I'm like a natural born writer, and that's not the case at all. I don't feel like that, but I do feel like I absorbed so much through osmosis because I was constantly read to and I was constantly around people that were writing. And I also come from a family of teachers, so there was such an atmosphere of intellectualism, and they always encouraged me to explore my passion through and express myself through a variety of disciplines, but I had an affinity for writing. So I think they influenced me by just showing me that writing is possible. Um, I often wonder what it would be like if I had grown up in a family that didn't support the arts or viewed writing as a childish pursuit. And I think I probably wouldn't be pursuing writing as a career if that were the case. So it was nice to be surrounded by people who um, showed me that it was possible to write into adulthood. What authors, filmmakers, other artists, besides the ones you mentioned when speaking with Leah, have really strongly influenced you? I think I'm most inspired by like the main figures of the new journalism, literary journalism, gonzo movement. So I really love Tom Wolfe, Joan Didion, Eve Babbitts, um, Truman Capote, because when I was in elementary school, whenever we would read nonfiction, it would always be super dry and super uninteresting. And then when we would read fiction, I, of course, loved it because it actually had a narrative, but I didn't really want to write fiction. So it was such an epiphany when I discovered the work of those people when I was in middle school because I realized nonfiction can be just as creative and just as compelling and can have a narrative just like fiction does. Um, so I'm very inspired by those people. In terms of filmmakers, uh, I'm very inspired by like cinema auteurs who just are are doing what they want and are able to do what they want. I think that's incredible. Um, I love Michelle Gondry. I love Wes Anderson. Yeah, I just really love anyone who's just unapologetically being themselves. And that's also applicable to art. This is Women of the Valley on KCBP Community Radio 95.5 FM and streaming at kcbpradio.org. Today, our guest is Hannah Heitman. When did you start to write for a wider audience? That's such an interesting question. Uh, when you sent it to me, I thought about it a lot because I still don't really think of myself as writing for a wider audience. I think I write mainly for an audience of one, which is myself, because the public is so fickle and people are so opinionated. The only way I could really find joy in writing is to please myself first. So I think I still would say I'm writing for myself mainly. But when I started my blog when I was about 12, it wasn't really about my writing, but I did start it because I wanted to connect with people over my interests because my friends at that age were great, but we didn't have a lot in common in terms of that. So I kind of turned to the internet to find connection like that. Um, so I guess you could say at that age is when I chose to connect with a wider audience through my work. In high school, you edited a specialty in-depth magazine, Exploration by the Realm. What topics did this magazine explore? So I edited The Realm, which was a school magazine, for my junior and senior year of high school. And I was 
first enrolled in the class in my sophomore year, but I couldn't be editor because it was my first year. Um, and it was totally in shambles. It only printed like three times a year and it was just so disorganized. So I really saw an opportunity to build it from the ground up. And at the time, it was a very traditional high school news magazine. And I noticed, I mean, I knew that I wanted to be like an arts and culture journalist. And the arts and culture magazines I saw on the newsstand were so different from the stuff that the school magazine was covering. They had heavily art-directed photography and in-depth profiles. And I really wanted to imitate that at the student journalism level. Um, and I also noticed kind of a trend among art magazines. They would all have a theme that like united all of the content. And I really, really wanted to do that. So when I became editor the next year, I told my teacher I wanted the magazine to have this monographic theme that all of the content would fit under. So it was sort of like a print version of This American Life. That's how I described it to him. So I would have like an editor's letter that would explain the theme and how the articles inside relate to it. So that first year, we made so many magazines. I think we did like seven issues. And we covered all sorts of things. The theme for my first issue was happiness, and then it was connection, and we did one with the theme of obsession, which was really interesting. Um, and that was great. I feel like the staff and I really learned a lot from being so prolific, but going into my senior year, I really wanted to focus on something that would like be a really useful portfolio builder for me and something that would be had more attention to detail. So I chose the theme of exploration because I thought it fit so well with the beginning of the school year because you're sort of finding your footing and exploring what this new year is going to be. And I wanted it to be sort of like a textbook. So I had the idea of doing the entire issue in photo diagrams. So each spread would explore a different concept through a photo diagram. It's kind of hard to explain. But the idea was that we would cover these very universal concepts, but through the lens of Downey High so that students at Downey would respond to it, but it could also be enjoyed by someone who didn't go to our school or know anything about us. So the concepts that we explored in that issue, um, we did exploration of summer where we interviewed kids about what they did over summer and we had like this great overhead shot of objects we thought represented summer so that we could have lines pointing to them with the quotes from the student. Um, we did exploration of work where we did a lot of research on like work habits and stuff and then we did play which was sort of the same thing. My favorite spread in that issue though was the last one which was exploration of the end and we like we had like a skeleton thing there so we talked about death and then we talked about the end of high school and the passing of time. I think that that really kind of hit home what I was trying to do with the issue, which was introduce these like philosophical concepts, but also still make it not so lofty and still relevant to student life. When I was online, I became aware that in 2017, Ad Age Creativity 50, you were one of the 50 individuals selected. And there's your picture and name right under Jordan Peele. And you were recognized for the high school yearbook ads that you obtained in order to lower the cost of the high school yearbooks. Could you tell us about that creative endeavor, please? 
Yeah, of course. So I actually had the idea long before I executed it. I was watching uh, Freaks and Geeks on Netflix. Um, and for people who haven't seen the show, it's basically just follows these high schoolers, but it has a really memorable title sequence where they're all lined up to take their school photo and it shows them getting like their very typical school photo done. And I was just thinking it would be so funny if there were like advertising mascots mixed mixed in with the senior portraits um and I told my dad about it and he was like I think I just thought it was like a silly like observation but he was like I think that's a really good idea you should pursue that so I started contacting uh CMOs CEOs of companies that had very memorable characters there were initially a lot more people involved uh but it kind of like thinned out just because you know things happen um but yeah I contacted like the Geico Gecko Colonel Sanders the ones who actually made it in the yearbook and then like Ronald McDonald and those people I contacted all those people first because I wanted to be sure that they were on board with the idea and then I initially brought the idea to my school's yearbook Uh, But they thought it wouldn't fit well enough with their theme. So then I took it to the school where my mom teaches and they were really into it. And their theme was out of the blue that year. So it was so perfect. And they also were in need of money more than my own school was. So I ended up doing the project there and it got a surprising amount of attention. I, I thought maybe local news would pick it up and that would be it. But I was surprised by the ad age mention and all of that. Well, congratulations. And I didn't mention earlier that also um, your high school publication, The Realm, was a finalist in the 2018 magazine Pacemaker competition held by National Scholastic Press. And I don't know if it went on and beyond that. It may have. But uh, what was your reaction when you learned about that? Yeah, well, that's actually a really long story because uh, when I initially pitched my concept for the magazine, my teacher was like, okay, I can be on board with this, but you have to realize that you're probably not going to get any awards because it was so unusual. And the NSP, I, I think, is like a bit behind the actual journalism industry. Student journalism is always lagging, and so they were still very much focused on like news magazines and traditional formats. And I, of course, just chose to do things my way, regardless of the awards. And we did still submit it for the Literary Magazine Awards, which it didn't quite fit into because there wasn't a specialty magazine category yet. Mm. Um, And then after years of submitting to the Literary Magazine Awards, there was finally this category that was perfect for us. Um, And I actually found out about it after I had graduated high school. I was almost through my first year of college. And I actually had pretty mixed feelings about it, just because I have a complicated relationship with creative awards. I think that awards in regards to the arts kind of miss the point. I think it should just be about creating something and celebrating your creation and connecting with other people who are making things. And it's actually interesting because Ad Age renamed their Creativity 50 the Creativity All-Stars as a way of kind of lessening the the ranking system, which I think is great. I think that's amazing. Uh, the NSPA hasn't done anything similar to that. But I was, I was very happy that I was finally getting the recognition. But 
what mattered to me was making something that I was proud of and that the students at my school responded to. In 2018, you created an exhibit at the McHenry Museum entitled A World of Our Own. Please tell our listeners about that. Yeah, so that exhibit I did at the end of my senior year of high school, and I really wanted to sort of reflect on my own high school years and give others the opportunity to reflect on their high school experience artistically. Um, So I sent sort of a call for submissions out to all the Modesto City schools, and I really pushed it at my own high school. And I got several submissions. There was even a middle school that um, the art teacher made it an assignment for them to illustrate their expectations of high school, which I thought was really cute. So I included that in the exhibit. And I titled it A World of Our Own because uh, I think that's sort of a phrase that's used in a derogatory way towards teenagers. They're like, oh, they're in a world of their own. Uh, But I, I think it's true. And I don't really take issue with that. I think the introspectivity of teen life is really magical and um, I thought it was an apt name because the art just so beautifully captured that time in in our lives. I really enjoyed it. I'm so glad I got (laughs) to see that. You've often written about young people in middle school. What is it about that particular demographic that you find compelling? Yeah, in the about page for the online museum that I kept up between 2013 and 2015, the Museum of Middle School, I wrote that if high school is when we find ourselves, middle school is when we lose ourselves. And I think that kind of captures why I'm so fascinated with that time in our lives because it's the first big change that most kids experience. You're changing schools, you're going through all these hormonal changes. And it's such a transitional time. I feel like you kind of have to let go of the endless possibilities of childhood a little bit during that time. You know, like if you want to be a ballet dancer, middle school is probably the time when you realize that that's not a viable career option. And it it can be sad, but I also think that it's a really magical time. And every there's so many transitional phases in one's life. And how you deal with that initial transition, I think affects you for the rest of your life and kind of determines how you're going to handle all of those other changes. So how did you get into blogging? So I started my blog, I think, in 2012, and that was kind of the golden age of blogging and Blogspot. There were so many young people that were writing. It was also a golden age for feminist media, I think. I was really inspired in particular by Tavi Gevinson, who um, she's a really big name in journalism right now, but she got her start doing a fashion blog when she was 11 years old. And then she started this um, online feminist magazine when she was 15 called Rookie Mag. And that just, uh, she just quit that like last year, I think. So it went on for quite a while. Um, And I was really inspired by her trajectory, seeing someone my age getting so much attention for writing and writing in such an honest way about things that I really cared about and thought no one else did. That's what really inspired me to start my own blog. Um, And I saw how she created this community of people who shared her inspirations. And I really wanted that, too, because, again, I mentioned my friends didn't really share my same tastes in art. um, So I really wanted people that I could talk to about those things. When then did you start the avant-garde tweener? 
So that was in 2012, and I called it the avant-garde tweener because um, I didn't really feel, I felt that my interests were like very cutting edge, at least compared to my peers, and so that's why I gave myself that name, and I was, of course, a tweener at that time. And it just started as a way of trying to forge friendships online based around shared inspirations. Was it scary at first to put yourself out there in an online diary? I read uh, something you'd written, self-awareness and self-reflection are important. Why did you decide to post your stream of consciousness and spontaneous, and I'm quoting again, writing rather than just kind of keeping it locked away? So the major reason for this is actually because I think it's, a lot harder to get rid of things on the internet. It's a lot harder to lose. And like I said, I mainly write for myself. So I wanted to have this sort of archive of things I could look back on that I did or like how I felt during a certain time in my life. And I also always enjoy when creatives I admire have this traceable trajectory of their career so you can see how they evolved and arrived at the style that they use today. And so um, I want to give other people the opportunity to do that with my work. Uh, I don't know if like anyone would ever care, but I, it's important to me that they could. Um, and I also, I do believe self-awareness is very important, but I have a sort of respect for people who are just unapologetically bad at their art and they think it's great, like Tommy Wiseau, who, who did this famously bad movie called The Room. Um, and I think there's something to be said for, for not caring if, if people are going to bash your work and just having this unabashed sense of confidence. This is KCBP Community Radio, 95.5 FM, and streaming at kcbpradio.org. This is Women of the Valley, and today we're talking with Hannah Heitman, a journalist, a student. I want to next ask, you have a new blog, Hype Zine, so could you tell us about that? Yeah, of course. I started publishing interviews on the avant-garde tweener in junior year of high school, and they started getting a lot more attention than I expected, and I felt that they deserved their own space. And I also, it was kind of chaotic looking at my blog and seeing all these personal posts mixed in with like these interviews, and I really wanted to get back to uh, blogging about my personal life. So I just felt that the interviews had kind of outgrown that space, and so I wanted to create an offshoot. But I think Hypezine is similar to the avant-garde tweener, at least the avant-garde tweener when I started it, in that it's all about um, creating a community around shared inspirations. In September 19, 2019, the blog said, What female cult leaders in popular movies and TV can teach us about patriarchy? This was on Hello Giggles. Here's the quote. The parallels between cults and patriarchy are endless, from brainwashing to the difficulty of leaving a toxic structure. Even the idea of having a real identity and a cult identity calls to mind the dual identity women are forced to have, who they are when being themselves, and who they are seen as when being objectified. Please tell us how you came to write about this topic. 
That came about because I actually started writing it during the summer, and Midsommar had just came out, which is a horror movie. Uh, It's also sort of a breakup movie, but it's basically about this couple who goes to study a uh, Midsummer festival, and they end up getting caught up in this cult, basically, and it's, it's very dangerous. And, um, spoiler alert, there's this very, uh, now famous scene at the end of it where the female lead, Danny, who has been consistently gaslighted by her boyfriend, um, is declared the May Queen, uh, which means she gets to choose the sacrifice for that year in the cult. And she chooses her boyfriend, and he's, like, wrapped in this bear carcass, and he's put in this straw hut, and it's set on fire. Uh, it's a very, very intense ending. And the movie is incredibly done. The director, Ari Aster, I think is very talented. But I did sort of take issue with the reception to it because I saw a lot of feminist critics and just people on Twitter saying, like, yeah, you go, girl, like, burn your boyfriend in that house. And I just thought that was kind of inappropriate and it misconstrued the idea of that movie. And it got me wondering... This, at first glance, seems like an unabashedly feminist ending, but it's also kind of a statement on how we see women in power and how scary they can be. And I started thinking about other horror movies about cults that I'd seen and if that sort of model was also applicable to them. And I kind of figured out that it was, and I thought that was a really interesting trend that I hadn't seen discussed before. How and when did you start to become concerned with issues affecting girls and women? Well, my mom has had a really big influence on my life in that regard. She was always very concerned with socio-political issues, especially ones that affect women. And so I grew up in that atmosphere. But I think when I really started developing my own opinions on that was probably in middle school, because around that time I started identifying as a feminist and I started reading more feminist writings and getting into different sects of feminism. So I would say in middle school. <laughs> What can we do as individuals and members of our community to respect and uphold the rights of women and girls? I think that we need to vote for people who will respect and uphold the rights of women and girls. I think that's probably the most important thing to be well-researched in regards to that. But I also think participating in protests and demonstrations when there's a threat to women's livelihood is also very important. What would you recommend girls and women do then to empower themselves and one another? I would say that the most important thing is to philosophically recognize that your experience is not the experience, and the issues affecting you are incredibly important, but you also have to realize that there are issues affecting women that you might not face, and those are equally as important. I feel like I've seen so much on my feeds lately about white feminism. And I don't think white feminism stems from these people being evil or thinking that they're any better than any other woman. But I do think it stems from this idea that your experience must just be how everyone's living. And that's not entirely true. Both your father and your mother, Kim Heitman, teach high school. In addition to your own perceptions and experiences as a student, I imagine you must hear and sometimes discuss with your parents their opinions and ideas. 
what do you think schools should do to create a more gender equitable, supportive, and responsive learning environment? I think we should strive for post-gender education um, to a certain extent. When I was in high school, there were a lot of times when my teachers would just sort of go off on a tangent about how women think differently from men. And I'm sure that was well-intentioned. I hope it was. But it was just received in a very damaging way that sort of made the student body feel as though women were subordinate to men. Mm. So I think that gender needs to to leave the discussion to a certain extent. But I also feel that we need massive reform to the dress code, maybe even get rid of the dress code entirely. And we need to teach our students more about consent. Mm. I think that's probably the number one thing I would change. I was never taught consent in high school, and I think that's really a travesty. Do you have any ideas how the problem of school bullying and just general cruelty to other students might be more effectively addressed? So I think that, um, again, we need to be more sensitive to other people's experiences. I actually think that school bullying has changed a lot. Hmm. At my school, we had people that... Uh, I think would have been targets of bullying in the past and they never encountered any issues and it was such an environment of inclusivity. I would actually sit by myself at lunch sometimes and read just because I wanted to. I had friends I could sit with and I always had like five people stop by and say, are you okay? Do you need friends? Do you need someone Mm. to sit with? And so like that's just such a great testament to this generation's empathy and positivity. Oh, I am thrilled to hear that. <laughs> that's so great. You've written that strong women and female leaders are perceived by some people as threats to the status quo. I know you talked about that a little bit in context with these movies with cult leadership being women. Could you elaborate though on this problem in our society? Of course. So Historically, men have been the ones in power, so we really don't have a lot of models for females in power, especially in the United States. And because we don't have that, it's unfamiliar, and people are afraid of the unfamiliar. So I think a lot of it stems from that. And also, when historically marginalized groups start to gain power, that feels like a threat to the people who have always had the power. So I think that's kind of what we're seeing now is a lot of old white men who are upset about the newcomers. Yeah. What benefits would accrue to men as more women assume more leadership roles? I don't think men realize how much toxic masculinity hurts them, too. So I would hope if we had more female leaders or non-binary leaders that we would have a more emotionally open space where people felt comfortable expressing their feelings. And I would hope that we would have more professional spaces that are defined more by listening than by talking. And hopefully we'd have a more peaceful world. Absolutely. (laughs) How do you think human society will change when women are perceived and treated as equals? I would hope that society would change and that we would be more empathetic to each other. I really 
there's been this sort of backlash to the phrase, the future is female, because people are saying, I don't want the existing structures to stay the same, except it's just someone who looks like me in power. And I do agree with that. I hope that, because right now we're, I mean, these patriarchal structures are still going to be there, even if we just swap a man for a woman. So I'd hope that there would be massive, massive reform and that we would become more uh, connected to each other and more empathetic to people. I'm hoping that it will have a, a huge effect on how children are cared for and their their concerns I think that would be something that we could look forward to. Absolutely, yeah. What advice would you give to girls and young women? I would say that it's a radical act to be yourself in a society that's constantly pressuring you to conform. So just be unapologetically yourself. Take up as much space as possible. That's great. (laughs) This is KCBP Community Radio 95.5 FM. This is Women of the Valley, and today our guest is Hannah Heitman. You were in New York for the summer through the School of the New York Times. Please tell us about that experience. That was incredible. I had been a student at the program for two summers, and then I got to be an academic assistant this past summer, which is sort of like a camp counselor position. And it really changed my perspective on things. I think that program is really a great model for what education should look like. And I was talking about how I felt like uh, there's all these competitions in regard to creative fields, and they're the complete opposite of that. They have some silly competitions, but it's mainly about uniting with people who who share your common interests. So uh, it's, it's a program for teens who are interested in media and related fields. Um, So When I was a student, I was so thankful for it because it gave me the opportunity to explore New York City and talk with professionals who were in the field that I wanted to be into. And it also gave me kind of a cohort of other teens who could help workshop my work and who we all kind of came of age creatively at the same time. And then when I was an RA, I realized how much work the staff puts into creating this very inclusive space. It's because we have kids from all over that come to the program from, we have a lot of kids from the South and they're often non-binary or transgender or gay and those identities really aren't accepted where they are. So they have two weeks where they're basically allowed to be themselves for the first time in their lives. And that was incredible to witness. Mm -hmm. And it just reminded me, like, growing up in California, there's so many things that are accepted here, even in Modesto, which is kind of a conservative community, that I often forget that that's not the entire country. When did you decide to become a journalist? So I actually, I had a magazine when I was in elementary school, and that's when I kind of thought of magazines and publishing as a possible career, but uh, I was surrounded by writers, and I kind of realized what a tumultuous path that would be, Uh, so I was still very attracted to this idea of creating an experience for people. That's what drew me to museum studies after that. And I I love museum studies, and I'm still so thankful that I can view the world through that lens now. But I always paid more attention to the people than I did the art. And that's when I kind of realized that I wanted to be a journalist 
and coupled with uh, my experience with student journalism at my high school, all those things kind of culminated in me realizing I, I have to pursue this. You've done many interviews. I was curious, how, how do you approach these people? Uh, could you describe the process of the interview for us? Yeah, I get asked that a lot by my friends who are like, how do you have the courage to to walk up to these people or to email them? Um, and, and you just got to do it. I mean, I want to find out about them. And that curiosity is really what drives me. But usually if there's someone whose byline I've been seeing a lot and I've really been liking their work, then I'll, I'll reach out to them to see if I can get an interview or if there's a publication that I really like, I'll look at the masthead to see the editors and see if I can get in contact with one of them. And, uh, you know, I really haven't been rejected that many times. I feel like people are are so afraid of rejection that they forget success and acceptance is a possibility uh, so they don't even try which is really sad because most people do really want to help you especially young people mm, good well of the editors that you have interviewed what do they say journalists should strive to do and be so the most common answer to that question is resilience and creativity are like the most important skills for a young journalist to develop. And I think that's very true, but I also think those skills are so important in any field or any discipline, not just journalism. Like I I want teachers that are curious and doctors that are curious, um, not just journalists. So I think that's pretty good sound advice for, for anyone. What do you do to strengthen your writing and interviewing skills and more fully develop the personal qualities important to a journalist? So hype helps, hype zine helps a lot with that, just reaching out to people and constantly pitching places because I think the hardest part about my job is probably rejection and it gets, it gets better, you know, you get used to it. Um, so I've prepared myself in that way, but I also think that as a any sort of young creative, you really need to be prolific and be practicing constantly, so I try to do that. It's very important to be prolific as an amateur. I hope to eventually, maybe next year, I'll kind of exit the sort of phase of proliferation and really hone my skills and hone my projects, but right now I think sheer volume is probably the most important thing. Do you get feedback from anyone else before publication? Yeah, I usually have my parents read it to see because I have a conversation with everyone I interview and I kind of forget the background knowledge that I have that the reader might not. And so that can affect the readability of the article. So I always want to get an outside perspective before I publish it to be sure that it makes sense to viewers. And you've also attended many journalism conferences. Could you tell us about those? Sure, yeah. The journalism conferences that I attended the most were hosted by the NSPA, who's also in charge of the Pacemaker Award uh, that Realm was nominated for. Um, and I didn't love them. I was kind of distraught because... It's more of a business than anything else. Unfortunately, everyone has to pay dues. And I think that really affects the vibe of it. Uh, student journalism is very disconnected from the actual journalism industry. Mm -hmm. And so I would encourage student journalists to 
talk to working journalists and not necessarily uh, journalism teachers at the high school level because you're going to kind of end up with an outdated skill set. But the journalism conferences were still fun for me because I was able to connect with people who could match my passion for journalism. But I wish it was more about that connection rather than awards or like um, just who who knows the most about journalism and that sort of thing. You grew up here in Modesto. How has that helped or hindered you as a writer and as a journalist? It's definitely shaped my creative sensibilities a lot. I think that the media, long before fake news, long before the 2016 election, sort of contributed to the attitude that would eventually culminate in Trump's presidency in the sense that all these major publications are catering to coastal hubs and the elite people. And I saw firsthand living in Modesto, which is sort of a rural community, um, how much people are hurt by that and feel excluded by that and feel the need to lash out as a result of that. And there are some very evil racist people, of course, but I think a lot of people are, are simply mad and ignorant. And it's very important to make sure that they're included too, because their voices are important. So growing up in Modesto has taught me not to flatten things out into two-dimensional caricatures and rather look at people, places, situations in, in their entirety. But I think it's hindered me just in the sense that if I had grown up in the city, I would be surrounded by highly motivated people and I would have more opportunities in writing. You've done a great deal of traveling on your own and I really admire that Has it been kind of frightening at times? And what helps you to do this? Um, Well, actually, one of my biggest like quandaries with traveling now is just the environmental impact it has. I always feel bad when I do plane travel. Um, But my parents, again, serve as inspiration for that. They're my mom especially is very well traveled and she she went backpacking across Europe with her friend when she was my age and I like could never imagine doing that and she would never let me do that. <laughs> um, but seeing her just sort of fearlessly go to all these places and tell me these amazing stories about what she experienced uh, definitely made me want to travel and I've always been fascinated by other cultures and I wanted to gain like a a fuller perspective on them. So I think that also is what made me want to travel more. Where are some of the places you've traveled? So I've been to Paris, which was amazing. I've been to London. And then last summer, I went to Tokyo. It was a that had been a long time coming. I'm super fascinated with Japanese culture. I'd taken Japanese language lessons and I'd always loved it. And I'd always wanted to go there. I wanted to be an exchange student, but I didn't end up doing that because little did I know my aunt had always planned to take me after high school graduation on a trip to Japan, like since I was, since I got into it when I was 10 years old. So they surprised me with that on my birthday and I really took me by surprise. I had no idea they were planning that. 
And then I went there and it was just so incredible. I met so many cool people. I went to a lot of like local art fairs and I went to this amazing zine store, which was really cool because I feel like when you go to sort of less touristy places, there's so much more personability. And I met some incredible artists who I still keep in touch with and we're pen pals. So that was probably my favorite trip that I've taken. This is Women of the Valley. We're speaking with Hannah Heitman, and this is KCBP Community Radio, 95.5 FM, and streaming at kcbpradio.org. Hannah, do you think journalism is more important than ever in this day and age? Absolutely. I think, I would hope that most people would agree with that. Um, I think the 2016 election kind of galvanized the journalism world and and galvanized interest in journalism. And I think that um, these big media companies are kind of more beholden toward their audiences now more than ever. Um, And working in fashion journalism and talking to fashion editors, I think it's interesting that the sort of evolution that sector of the media had because it had always been frivolous and they'd always been focused on like celebrity news and that sort of thing. And then the 2016 election happened and everyone was like, mm-hmm. we can't just turn a blind eye to this. Yeah. Um, I interviewed the editor in chief of InStyle, which is a fashion magazine geared towards older women, Laura Brown. And she said, you know, you you can't ignore that. You can still have the glamour of fashion, but you can't turn a blind eye to what's going on politically. Mm-hmm. So you have Teen Vogue, which had been focused on like Jonas Brothers and lip gloss, now talking about cultural appropriation and Marxism. And I think that's just really, really incredible. And I hope that it wasn't just like a one-time thing. And I hope that sort of wave of progressivism is here to stay. So what are your future plans and aspirations? So I'm hoping to move to New York this fall or Southern California, and um, I really want to work more on building up my freelance portfolio and my dream job that I don't know if I'll get there, but I'd really like to edit the New York Times magazine because I feel like the magazine had the advantage of being part of this larger entity, the New York Times. It's literally wrapped up in the newspaper, so they don't have to worry about newsstand marketability and can take all of these creative and stylistic risks, and that idea is very attractive to me. When you were in New York, did you get to interview anybody at the New York Times Yes, I did. So when I was there as a student in 2018, I actually interviewed the editor-in-chief of the New York Times Magazine, Jake Silverstein. And he was incredibly nice. It was so surprising. He actually knew where Modesto was because I'm used to people when they when I say I'm from Modesto, they're like, where is that? But he's from Oakland, so he knew where Modesto was. Uh, and he's an incredible journalist. I love how he's once again, in in the vein of new journalism, able to make these nonfiction stories so compelling. And then when I was an assistant at the School of the New York Times, I got to work with um, a lot of Times journalists, uh, Marianne Giordano, who focuses on like sustainability, I believe she's retired now, and then Patty Cohen, uh, who focuses on like arts and business for, for the New York Times. So that was incredible. What can our listeners do to support journalism? 
Wow. Well, uh, definitely get past the paywall. Subscribe to the New York <laughs> Times. Subscribe to the Washington Post. Donate to the Guardian. Um, donate to your favorite publications. Just reading and listening and clicking helps a lot. Um, so I would say, yeah, do that. Great. Leah, do you have any last questions for Hannah? Let me think. Where can we go to read some more of your writing? Because I know I want to do that. <laughs> for sure. Um, so you can go to hypezine.org, and that will have all the interviews I've done with editors and stuff. And then you can also visit my personal blog, The Avant-Garde Tweener, which is spelled A-V-A-N-T-G-A-R-D-E, and then tweener. Um, and then you can follow me on Instagram to keep up with my uh, adventures at V and various freelance things. My username is at Hannah Hype with an H at the end and then H-Y-P-E. Great. Thank you for that. No problem. Any last uh, parting comments, Hannah? I don't think so. I think we about <laughs> covered everything. Thank you for your lovely questions. Oh, thank you so much for coming. It was just such a pleasure talking with you today. Oh, it was great talking with you as well. Thanks, Hannah. Very inspirational. Yes. <laughs> thank you. You've been listening to Women of the Valley on KCBP Community Radio, 95.5 FM, and online at kcbpradio.org. This has been Leah Hassett and Linda Scheller. We hope you'll catch us next time on Women of the Valley. Thanks for listening. Our music is Tin Can Trap by Chad Crouch.